Okay. Did the lady just tell you right, we're recording? <laughs> the Zoom lady, as you called her. Zoom lady. So the Zoom lady. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Class Unity Transmissions. Uh, we are joined today by Ephraim Karlbach, uh, who will be discussing with us uh, the 10-year anniversary of the well-known essay by Mark Fisher, Escape from the Vampire Castle. Joining me today in the conversation is also our, are also my co-hosts, uh, C. Dark Barn. Hello. How are you today? I am well. I'm glad to hear it. And my other co-host is Noah LC, Noah LeBon Clark. How are you? Hey, Clark. Um, I'm good. Um, I'm good. Happy to be here. Okay. Uh, Ephraim, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we, we've really wanted to have this conversation for some time to, to give you some background on this. Um, the idea of a 10-year anniversary of this essay had completely escaped me until my good colleague and friend here, Noah, uh, informed me that it was the anniversary of the essay and uh, I just I couldn't believe how much time had passed. Um, this is obviously uh, a, a piece of work that's important in your commentary. Let me first start by introducing you to the listeners. Uh, Ephraim is a member of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Uh, he's based in London. Um, Let's just start today, I think, Ephraim, by trying to situate Fisher as uh, something like a left-wing anti-capitalist. Fisher, as many of the listeners to this show will already know, was best known for his concept of capitalist realism. However, in your article, which is basically the main reason we wanted to talk with you today, your article entitled Forgetting Mark Fisher, which is available on the Platypus uh, website, I'll post a link to that in the show notes for those not familiar. Y you argue that Fisher was actually a little bit ambiguous in his use of this term, this term again, capitalist realism. On the one hand, he referred often to the idea, which is frequently attributed to Frederick Jameson, that we are all kind of mentally stuck within capitalist ideology today. The saying goes, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But at times he also made this interesting move of saying that capitalist realism is specifically a pathology of the left. So I just wondered to start us off today, could you perhaps give us a quick primer on Fisher and his approach to this question of the left in the era of capitalist realism? Okay, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, Maybe I'll just say a bit first about how I came to write the article that's, um, that, that you asked about. Um, at the time, the Platypus a chapter in London was based at Goldsmiths University, which was where Mark Fisher had taught. And since his death, they had done every year uh, Mark Fisher Memorial Lectures. I believe they didn't do one this year. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what happened. Um, and I had never really read Mark Fisher before, but noticed that this was getting huge attention from students on campus and wanted to try and 
you know, through platypus engage, you know, what's the significance of this for the left? And at the time, um, they had just published this sort of slightly ridiculously oversized collection of K-punk blog posts. Um, so I decided to trawl through that and read Capitalist Realism and, and some of the other writings um, and really try to think about the kinds of uh, critiques of the left that Fisher was making. Um, but also I was I quickly became familiar with the kind of um, affective appeal of Mark Fisher, um, not just on the left, but really more broadly. Um, and you know, I read um, an article that uh, Derek wrote for Cosmonaut, where I think he described capitalist realism not as a theory, but as a description. Um, and I think that's accurate. And I think part of what appealed to a lot of people at that time about capitalist realism was it kind of described the malaise of their lives um, in the kind of post-2008 world. Um, and particularly with certain kind of parochial UK characteristics, which I was familiar with. Um, so what I discovered is that the kind of straightforward way of situating Fisher in relationship to the left, um, and this is to borrow a framework from Platypus, is that Fisher is a Gen X guy um, and he's a product of the post-political left. Um, so the background in accelerationism and uh, the cybernetic research unit, um, but also the appeal to him of Deleuze and Guattari and later Badiou and Zizek kind of um, phenomena that were, that kind of capture that. But also the way that his um, critiques of the left were really shaped by being critiques of um, certain aspects of the post-political left. So accelerationism appears as a kind of critique of the anti uh, the auto-globalization movement, the anti-WTO uh, uh, protests, Seattle in 99. Um, so it's really a product of that kind of period. Um, but it obviously reaches back into the new left in terms of its kind of deep origins. And then Fisher became this kind of significant figure for the millennial left, right? So he kind of, as this Gen X figure, bridges um, the new left and the millennials. And I think what I kind of got into in the article was um, his changing position vis-a-vis -vis the new left, right? About what the significance of the memory of the new left is, how it continues to haunt the left in the present. Um, and, and to really try and um, to trace that. So, I mean, I could go into more detail about, um, about accelerationism and the Deleuze and Guattari and uh, Nick Land, and I think we'll get into some of that stuff later. Last thing I would add, though, is the um, is something else that I think we'll come on to, which is the laborism uh, kind of in the background. Um, so I think um, you know one of the other things I tracked is this kind of shift from a critical position, let's say, towards a kind of soft social democracy or um, perhaps Labour Party politics um, in the UK. 
to an embrace of it um, only a few years later. Um, and I think that that was kind of always in the background. There's a blog post, I think it's called Democracy is Joy, um, where he is talking about the 2015 UK general election and describes the hopes that he'd had in 1997 for uh, New Labour and Tony Blair and how, well, that might not be socialism, but it could kind of shift things to the left. It's hard for people to actually um, think about that now because we think of it as such a foregone conclusion. It seems laughable, but there really were people on the left at the time who who were stuck in that kind of, um, you know, constantly imagining that voting the Tories out and getting Labour in will somehow open up new possibilities. Um, so I don't think that was something new that entered the frame for Fisher mm -hmm. only in kind of 2013, 2015, 2016. I think that's always there in the background. If you were to really ask in the 90s, what was the politics of accelerationism? It's very unclear. It doesn't really have a politics. And so you can have a kind of background left laborism um, in practice uh, and, you know, be an accelerationist, I guess, in your academic work or in your cultural analysis. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Noah, would you like to jump in here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so this year is the 10th anniversary of the uh, Exiting the Vampire Castle article. Um, for listeners who may not be familiar, can you offer a little a bit of background on this essay? Uh, why do you think it was so popular and, or such a controversial uh, piece? Equally, given Fisher's success with this essay, it's curious he didn't choose to you know, expand on it more or circle back to it. Um, in the in the remaining four or five years of his life, you know, he, he wrote this this article, which was uh, probably aside from capitalist realism, mm. his most popular um, or famous piece. And then he just sort of uh, left it and didn't come back. Um, what so what what uh what role or what place do you think this article has in its larger thought? Essentially, mm -hmm. um, I mean, hopefully. Derek can come in and, and discuss some of this as well. Obviously, it was published at North Star um, in 2013. And you know, I think the kind of background to that is important. Um, I actually didn't really deal with exiting the vampire castle in the um, presentation I gave at Goldsmiths, or, or which became the article, um, because I wanted to try and get into let's say like his theoretical presuppositions, his claims to Marxism, um, but actually, um, you know, coming back and reading that article again, it's clear that um, a lot of the same issues are at play um, in the way that it kind of sets up um, a kind of defend the NHS labor politics. Um, I think there's a couple of important points to the context that I wanna touch on. The first is just to kind of situate it historically um, on the left. So the 2013 moment, um, which in the UK is the time of the coalition government with the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. Um, and it's the time of the austerity cuts um, and the uh, protests. You know, in 2010, we had the student protests. Um, against the raising of tuition fees in the UK. In 2011, we had the, uh, I guess they're called the Tottenham riots. 
Um, and so that whole kind of background of austerity mm -hmm. and anti-austerity politics on the left um, is really important to kind of situating the article. Um, you know, he talks about going to the People's Assembly, right, in the article. So the People's Assembly was this kind of um, horizontalish uh, new formation um, that's a kind of post-occupy phenomenon in the UK um, and kind of obviously um, became completely redundant in at the very beginning of Corbyn and had already fizzled out really by then. Um, but he talks about his excitement about that. Um, and also the discussion of Russell Brand um, is about the anti-austerity kind of politics that Russell Brand was uh, taking up at that time. Right. Um, right. And most of that stuff did have an anarchist-ish anarchist uh, perspective. It, we're definitely in the post-occupied downturn on the left. Um, another part of the context is it being the post-Arab Spring downturn uh -huh. um, and Syrian civil war beginning um, and th the way that those questions are playing out in, in British politics. I noted, um, maybe we'll talk about Russell Brand again later, but... Right, I was um, going to say we should probably you know address that at some point because it's yeah. uh, back in the news this week uh or he's back in the news this week um yeah i just wanted right. to say though that Please, yeah of course sorry i just i noticed on that one of the when you google for um the vampire castle essay one of because north sud is uh not a website anymore um you can get it on open democracy but the other place you can get it is on ross wolf's blog um oh. And he's actually cut out all the references to Russell Brand. Um, not, I mean, I don't think recently, I think he did this a while ago, but like for him, reprinting the essay at the time of Mark Fisher's death, it wasn't important to include any of the para opening discussion about the People's Assembly and Russell Brand and the Jeremy Paxman interview, which if people haven't seen, they should go on YouTube and watch this interview between yes russell, exactly russell jeremy brand. paxman and russell brand and he touches russell. his leg a few times as well um which i'm sure is uh kel horror to some people russell brand also uh, narrated the capitalist realism audiobook yeah um but uh yeah i'm one of the original four-ish uh editors of the north star at the time that that article was published i'm one of the two who commissioned the piece um, my my late friend Paul Shetler um, had uh, some bad experiences at the People's Assembly, and we were also debating. Actually, and it, this this context is lost now, and it's never brought up when people discuss it. But we were debating the response of the the British and U.S. left uh, and their seeming total inconsistency towards. Uh, who they should support in the Syrian civil war and the proxy wars between the United States and Russia uh, that were being manifested through that. And in, in frustration over some things that happened at the People's Assembly around Islamism, believe it or not, uh, Paul Shetler approached uh, Mark to talk about his own frustrations about about Russell Brand and the the you know the NHS politics, um, 
we set up a debate uh, with Sam, Chris, uh, Jody Dean, Michael Rettenwald, um, myself, writing articles in response. Most of those articles are gone now. Uh, and uh, the reasons for that are complicated, but um, uh, if you really dig, you can find my response article, which uh, sort of splits the baby. And then uh, five years later, I did a, uh, uh, a, a a very long interview explaining um, my critique of of uh, of Fisher. One of the things that that I will say that I find interesting is this: th during this time period, Fisher was really sketchy about whether or not he considered himself a Marxist. Um, he would admit uh, after that. He, th he thought that Marxist uh, analysis of capital and class were too, re quote, reductive, that they were too based on uh, your class position, not your class origins, uh, not what, you know, uh, people would call habitats and sociological circles. And he was forced to talk about that in response to his specific claims about calling Russell Brand uh, working class where, you know, I mean, that was one of the things that I, I think I specifically laughed at when I read the piece for the the North Star. The other thing is, um, is while th this is one of the most read pieces, the initial reception to it, and I think we forget this, was entirely negative um, outside of the debate. Our uh, North Star was, was a uh, was attacked uh uh we, we were hacked multiple times during that time period uh th there was within 24 hours there was uh i don't know uh 2000 comments on the article almost all were negative um uh and um there was accusations of uh both Brand and Fisher being a fascist, that Fisher was secretly a Landite, et cetera. Um, and it broke up the editorial board of North Star Magazine and, and our ways to respond to it, me defending Fisher, um, Shetler, who was not a public uh, figure at this time, actually. A lot of people thought Shetler and I were the same person. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, because he was a government, Shetler was a government figure in the UK, uh, uh, not an elected one, a functionary, but nonetheless. Um, and so basically the editorial board runs the, the series of response articles with Dean and Michael Rettenwald uh, defending Mark, uh, me, defending Mark with some criticisms, Sam Chris attacking Mark, etc. When the article is repopularized after Bernie, all right, and I think that timing that its repopularization needs to be noted. Um, Sam uh, Chris uh, actually defended the article, renounced his prior position. Uh, wow. I, 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 uh, well, I will <laughs> I will spare my bitterness on that topic, but uh, okay. uh, uh, he uh, renounces his prior position, which um, was almost purely negative when the article first came out. There was 
discussions about an unopened democracy and in Jacobin magazine and like the Chapo people started talking about it. And the article enjoyed this second life where it became super important. And I, I've always felt that it was a, a, a miscontextualized as a response to Bernie Sanders, which it was not uh, ever. Um, and I have uh, over time become very frustrated with people not really reading closely what Fisher actually said in the piece. And, and uh, to speak to Ephraim's uh, comment about Warras, Warras is a friend of mine, and uh, we were comrades when we were both in Platypus ourselves. And uh, actually, when we when uh, when this was going on originally, I was still in Platypus Affiliated Society when we commissioned that piece. Um, Ross's uh, removal of the context, I, I have always taken to be kind of a problem because. Um, there's a whole lot of the actual substance of, of the piece that is very much about this turn to laborism and this kind of anarchistic to social democratic-ish pipeline and note the ish on both ends of those statements. Um, it was neither coherent on either side. And by removing that context from the initial piece, I always felt that that was like, it's made it seem like it was uh, just something about identitarianism and not wasn't actually defending anything very specific, which was specifically the shift from Occupy to Corbynism. That, and, and I think that rhyming with the whole shift from Occupy to whatever the hell it was in 2013-14 into Bernie, uh, Bernie Sandersism in 2000, after Bernie's defeat, uh, is a large reason why um, this was adopted in the U.S. left, again, so strongly from its prior, almost totally negative reception. And uh, our uh, class unity, our um, sort of rise came at around the same time, a little bit after um, this article got repopular, um, popularized. Repopularized, yeah. yeah. Ephraim, you wanted to jump in there? Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree, and actually, that the um, the turn to class, right, the, the the way in which class was brought up as a critique of identity politics in the kind of twenty fifteen, I mean, that that debate went all the way through to twenty twenty, um, was actually also problematic in its own way, um, and. And I think that the kind of decontextualizing of this piece is interesting there. But I think we should just say that, you know, it, a lot of the um, criticisms that he makes um, are still pertinent, right? I mean, again, at the descriptive level, um, one is struck reading it again 10 years on by just how much nothing has changed, right? And what Fisher is describing is a situation where there is no left. And, you know, in the, uh, the, what you have is a bunch of hectoring, um, you know, sects of one who uh, are out to police each other, and there's kind of zero political stakes. Um, and it's important to kind of 
register his frustration with the millennials there as an older as a gen x kind of guy in the room um it and the fact that the kind of pile on came from the millennial feminists um is significant um and you know i think another part important part of the context there is the rape crisis in the british swp which of course, yeah. was going on maybe like a few months before mm -hmm. um maybe six months before the piece was published um which of course was not really about a rape crisis but was a kind of political crisis of direction for the swp after the failure of its strategy and respect coalition again you mentioned islamism derek in the people's assembly there was islamism in the swp as well right in the coalition with george galloway um which which they had a split over which is what produced the group counterfire um but the inability to kind of confront political issues there and the um in a way latching onto the uh issue of um the mishandling of allegations of rape within the swp um was really symptomatic of that kind of inability to um to deal with that and the collapse of the you know it fisher never really mentions this but it's not clear to me what his um attitude towards that would have been i think he has a negative attitude to what he considered leninism i mean to the extent that you could class the S british swp in that but um so he might have cheered on the kind of oblivion of one of the sects because his politics was this in this kind of oscillation between anarchish and laborish right and the the swp had actually kind of mediated exactly that fudge on the british left right it had this anarchisty protest politics orientation um but it also had a kind you know it was always known as the largest formation on the british left outside the labor party um but which wasn't really saying very much um but always had an orientation towards labor at the end of the day um and so the the kind of crisis of that organization which had mediated that fudge hitherto right kind of throws open um all those questions and it's it's in out of that context that the kind of the um what derek described as the the negative response to fisher's essay comes derek i know you had a follow-up on that yeah in the article you know you argued that fisher sees capitalism as working towards quote the destruction of belief systems cultures and you know what he called life worlds um on this basis you argue that fisher had a purely negative view of capitalism um can you explain what you mean by this negative view and um to what extent do you attribute his culturalist view on the nature of class and the role of class in political life to this negative view because this is something that i have struggled with with fisher for almost 10 years now is this uh on one hand an insistence that class is the means out of these kind of culturalist politics and crises that we're talking about. On the other hand, he defines class in a culturalist way, which removes the the whole 
to me the whole basis of of the class critique of identitarian politics. So that's my bias, but it's never it's never a circle I've been able to square. And I think your article may give us some insight as to why this happened. I mean, I think the way you use um, culturalist there, for me, what that brings to mind is a kind of ongoing legacy of Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall on the British left. Um, but I just want to park that for a moment and we'll come back to it. Um, in the article, this issue of getting at Fisher's kind of, let's say, theory of capitalism um, is really about getting at his theory of history. Um, and it's about thinking about how one's theory of history is one's theory of the present and vice versa, right? And that the account one gives of history, historical transformation, um, is a reflection of that, of that kind of uh, position in the present um, and vice versa. And what's striking about Fisher in capitalist realism is actually the lack of history, um, but also a kind of actively ahistorical or anti-historical perspective that really comes from the background in postmodernism. Um, and specifically in Deleuze and Guattari. Um, so he kind of repurposes the, this idea of deterritorialization and re-territorialization um, and the destruction of life worlds um, has this kind of more, even more Heideggerian ring to it, but um, that's kind of part of the piece. And I think what he sees is I'm not sure if I would say it's like a negative view of capitalism because it actually involves a certain kind of positivity, which we'll come back to, which is exactly that culturalist view of class, which kind of subsists alongside that. I would say more straightforwardly, it's undialectical, right? He's not thinking about capitalism as a contradiction, um, but he's thinking about it in terms of uh this kind of destructive capacity. Um, and that clearly has its limitations because it, what I argue in the article is that it ends up undermining the basis on which uh, Marxists, at least historically, had conceived of the emergence of proletarian politics, of class struggle, of class consciousness, all of these, um, all of these political ideas. Um, so he he adds to that a kind of Badiou Zizek turn that he seems to get after 2006, um, where he, I don't know exactly what the trigger is for him there, but has this kind of turn to Marxism, in a, but through those figures, which I think, again, is, is problematic, and they share some of that same historical flattening out. And the main point that I picked up on is a kind of elision of uh, the bourgeois revolutions and bourgeois society really from his historical narrative. Um, and that kind of, I have this specific example of how we'll get onto Nick Land, but how Nick Land like suggests that Marx and Engels should update the communist manifesto by removing the words the bourgeoisie and replacing it with capital or capitalism. 
And Mark Fisher just does it without telling you. <laughs> right in capitalist realism he actually just edits Marx and Engels for them um so that was the kind of um the way I was looking at it so to circle back to the kind of Williams Hall issue and, and Derek's point about class um I think that what happens is you get this view almost of two cultures there's a capitalist culture which is um individualistic, greed-based, destructive. Um, and then there's a kind of anti-capitalist uh, culture, which is based on solidarity, which is based on the working right. class, which is communal, right? And I think here, what you really, you know, the, the essentially the core of my argument is that Fisher's skepticism about the left and his critique of the left collapsed because his politics were conditioned by neoliberalism right and anti-capitalism is itself insufficient and he reproduces these kinds of neoliberal oppositions of individual community um uh contingency and determinism uh, and so on um so to get back to the hall and williams point this idea that there's a working class culture which is going to kind of almost be prefigurative of a socialist society, um, I think is definitely there in Fisher and is something that doesn't sit easily with the accelerationism, right? And that's where he kind of pulls back from Nick Land and the origins in Leotard and Guattari and Deleuze. Um, but it has its roots really in that part of the British New Left, um, uh, specifically Stuart Hall, who he cites uh, in the exiting the vampire castle, right, as part of his hope for the future, um, and also Raymond Williams. I wonder if I can just uh, jump in there, Ephraim. I mean, I, I, the thing that really strikes me, and you, you just, I think, passed by it quickly, but I'd like to, to sort of skirt back for it, because listeners, I, I, I'd like for listeners to have the opportunity to hear you comment on this, I think, very pivotal part of your paper and, and your article. Um, and it's specifically this dichotomy between the communist hypothesis, which you attribute to Badiou, and I think you contend that it runs very strongly through Fisher's work, because you, you just we just heard you say that. Um, for you, there's some there's another hypothesis that needs to be contemplated here, maybe as a as a reference point or as a point of critique on Fisher's work, and it's the Marxist hypothesis and. I know that um, in Platypus and other 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 commentators within your sort of circle, academically and intellectually, uh, use similar terminology. You even mentioned it just there: this question of the bourgeois society, the bourgeois revolution, and the necessity of completing it. I I wonder, just for listeners, could you briefly recapitulate the nature of that critique and maybe just touch again on how it how it plays out in in Fisher's work? Because it it is such an interesting point. You know, who is Badiou? I guess maybe it would be a good place to start, and then you could unpack it from there. Sure. Um, I mean, here I was really building on the article by Chris Catrone, The Marxist Hypothesis, which is his critique of Badiou. Um, and really, uh, Badiou is um, a kind of um, Maoist, uh, right? Typical, uh, typical member of the French New Left, 
Uh, In Maoism, I mean, he's a kind of polymath with all sorts of interests that I can't get into now. But um, for the the purposes of this kind of part of the argument and and building on on Chris's article, um, it's about a kind of um, theory of history again. Right. It's about um, it's about locating where does the possibility for a society beyond capitalism come from right where does the potential and impulse for uh communism or the potential for communism that's latent in capitalism come from how do we understand that um and badu is kind of here held up as someone who deals with it in a trans historical way as a matter of a resistance against oppression um, and it becomes a kind of principle that you can find in all kinds of historical moments um, and that uh, can be kind of, you know, that he has periodizations of it. He has specific periodizations around the Paris Commune, for example. Um, and it's about um, where that might kind of come back or reemerge, right, the communist hypothesis. Um, and that certainly has a strong influence on Fisher. The, the response, the, the Marxist hypothesis, is actually that the potential, that first of all, that the crisis of capitalism and the potential for socialism within it is it very historically specific um, and is not only historically specific, but is based on a certain kind of historical consciousness or awareness of history that is itself uh, specific to the modern bourgeois era uh, and its crisis within capitalism. So for Marx, the kind of fundamental uh, uh, contradiction is between the bourgeois social relations of labor and the industrial forces of production. Um, And it's about locating that kind of historical specificity against this trans-historical argument of anti-oppression, right, that the Marxism was not concerned with anti-oppression, but with a freedom problem that was historically transformed um, that at the at kind of level of social totality that Badu's thesis can't really contend with. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think that's gonna be helpful for, for this uh, interview, for, for people to have an understanding of that, and uh, possibly also for the next couple of questions that I know uh, we'll turn to. Perhaps uh, Noah would like to jump in here with the... Uh, Can I just add so one please, rider on the, on the end of that before we um, move on, which is just this sure. issue of class, because I think um, it's, it's, again, a tricky thing. Um, I, I want to kind of emphasize class as being um, what Marx called character masks, right? That, that it's a kind of phenomenal form of the self-contradiction of bourgeois social relations and industrial forces of production, but it's not the thing in itself. Um, and there is a danger of kind of uh, hypostatizing class um, that uh can itself l- kind of be part of the reproduction of capitalism right so i think that the 
there can actually be a um, a continuity between the transhistorical anti-oppression history or narrative of history um, and a kind of uh, focus on class that uh, that I guess fetishizes it in a in a particular way. Interesting. Um, I I don't want to presume to uh, you know make make too much of a of, of a critique of that, but I, I mean I think what I'm hearing you say is, in a sense, that we we need to start with an assessment of a sort of a, a depersonalized nature of capitalism today. It's not necessarily about the critique of. As, as sometimes we do, we get into a very personal or personalized critique of of class. You know, it's uh, the billionaires are all bastards and this kind of thing, right? It's it's. It, I think you're sort of looking for something more. Um, I think so. I think you know, that um, it's the 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 connection of Marxism to the bourgeois revolution here is important yeah. because of the way that it raises the problem of freedom at the level of social totality. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a kind of um, class politics um, can actually, you know, in, produce a form of capitalism that's run by the workers rather than, uh, you know, releasing us all from from this. From the yeah. And system. I think actually yeah. Fisher has moments in um, in the Vampire Castle essay where he mm -hmm. gestures towards this. Right. He does say, look, the point is actually to transform what this means yeah. and not to uh, hypostatize its appearance in the present. Yeah. I think that's the kind of, that's the point I'm trying to draw out. And and for all his flaws, Fisher did kind of um, gesture towards this in, in that essay at points. Yeah, so um, Nick Land's uh, influence on Fisher, I, I think, is uh, often overlooked um, or just not common knowledge in the case of younger leftists, um, like college kids, because like, why, why on earth would they be that deep into the, uh, the, the literature? Um, given sort of, uh, you know, th this essay, for instance, um, Really, really comes straight from uh, uh, the uh, Curtis Yarvin's notion of the cathedral, which Nick Land then picks up uh, in his book *The Dark Enlightenment*, which came out like a year before um, *Exiting the Vampire Castle*. And and to me, I, I think both the what both uh, do is sort of identify this sort of uh, stratum or bourgeois like institutions, um, uh, both the cathedral and I think the vampire castle are sort of identifying this this group of institutions and uh, its influence over culture. Um, so, 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 so my question is, uh, why? What? Um, 
what would you what would you say to somebody who who attacked Fisher uh, on the basis of his relationship with land? I, I think for like common normal people, you know, they look up accelerationism and what they get is a Vox article, which you know defines accelerationism as you know fascist essentially and attributes Nick Land as its you know primary uh, you know philosopher or whatever. So what sort of defense would you offer for, for um, you know, for people who just, yeah, for, who, for, for people who criticize Fisher uh, for being so influenced by land? I guess what I would say is don't worry about it so much. Um, <laughs> like Nick Land is not a significant or scary person. Mm-hmm. Um, and his right-wing turn or his right-wing politics are like very marginal and wacky internet kind of stuff um and you know if you went around your whole life uh not reading people on the left because they'd had some kind of association with someone who's right wing you would miss out on a lot of stuff um so (laughs) that's you know that's the like that's the advice um i think that the you know the the origin you know in that i actually was invited to debate a german organization called the association for the design of history which no longer exists um <laughs> on uh on this art on my article and they described themselves as less left accelerationists um so i kind of got more into this there than in the uh, forgetting mark fisher article but i think it's important to you know, take the um, origins of accelerationism in Deleuze and Guattari in their criticism of Samir Amin, right? So again, it's important to thinking about the history of the left here. We're de- what we're dealing with is a kind of the new left struggling with the legacy of the old left within parts of the new left, right? It's a it's a critique of a ex French Communist Party Maoist perspective which they called fascist right exiting the world market um and that you know wouldn't the emancipatory direction rather be to accelerate uh in the in the direction of the world market again i don't think it necessarily like going off those terms is helpful but that's where it comes from um so, so, so would you say yeah. that um would you say that the extent to which uh nick land uh nick land's influence on fisher uh his influence on fisher wasn't really right wing it was uh, i think you said earlier sort of uh, accelerationist um in in its earlier forms uh where it hadn't taken on that right wing character um like so so you don't think his influence has anything to do with i mean i think it's really hard to kind of pin any kind of politics to accelerationism and this whole kind of idea of there being a right accelerationism and a left accelerationism is is a bit for the birds i think left accelerationism i find doesn't really mean anything um what it was was an attempt the way it was used on the left was an attempt to critique a certain kind of um leftist politics which was whatever degrowth or small is beautiful or um something like this and you don't really need an elaborate postmodern theory to do that. Um, right. So um, I guess the the thing that I found contentious about Fisher 
was in especially in this piece which i think is interesting and people should read um terminator versus avatar which was published in 2012 um that he says marxism is nothing if it's not accelerationism um and so i wanted to kind of and i think there is this confusion sometimes like people often think um sometimes people hear about platypus and they say oh is that accelerationist right they like because they're very confused about what it means so they think it means oh you want stuff to get worse before it gets better that's accelerationism or Interesting. you um you the want... way i always conceived it was like um essentially like a you know it would like for um a drug addict who's who's uh who's suffering right the best the best solution would be to sort of accelerate his addiction to the point where you know he has he's forced to um sort of deal with it um obviously that's incorrect but i i think that's more or less the uh, mm -hmm. view that accelerating the contradiction right yeah just like make things so bad that the only solution is to completely solve everything um mm -hmm. What I tried to raise in my in this debate with the Association for the Design of History is how um, what accelerationism um, presents is a, a, a kind of effective one sided response to the way in which there's a contradiction of time in capitalism. Um, and cap that capitalism can feel both too fast and too slow um and that in a way it's a kind of flip side to a certain romanticism it actually has a romantic character to it um and that this is not basically how marxism dealt with uh thinking about the history basically right the relationship of um uh the relationship of the past to the present right in political action um so I think it was what I found salutary about the Nick Land blog post that I discovered, where he says, he quotes the Communist Manifesto, and he says, if Marx and Engels systematically substitute the bourgeoisie for capital or capitalism, um, their accelerationist credentials would be much improved, is that he's honest and straightforward about the fact that this isn't Marxism. Right, that accelerationism isn't Marxism. Whereas when you're a left accelerationist, you have to kind of hide it, fudge it, um, kind of say that they must be the same thing. And I think that, um, you know, to tie it round to something that I concluded the Forgetting Mark Fisher article with, that's a good example of one of these um, uh, kind of forgettings or making the incommensurate commensurable that Fisher criticized in capitalist realism, where there's a there's a kind of desire on the left to say that everything must go together and actually to um, paper over like significant ideological differences, differences in approach to capitalism, history, politics. Um, so, you know, Fisher points claims, you know, we don't have to choose between. Um, I think he lists like. Gramsci and Guattari. Um, Interesting. And by the way, I didn't mention before, but the yeah. in, we should have said in the in the Vampire Castle, I say there's a significant kind of Gramscian influence. Um, 
but anyways that that was the point <laughs> about uh, nick land and accelerationism so it, it in a way it was more honest about it's different from difference from marxism that's very insightful thank you um, and also Terry, what happened sorry. to the left accelerationists like they became advisors to the labor party and then disappeared yep is that true yes <laughs> so it goes full circle from a new left critique of um post-war social democracy old left politics round to a justification for a bad revival of neo-social democracy interesting okay i might actually have a couple of questions on that but i know uh derek is interested uh in asking about corbynism and uh acid communism and, and this kind of stuff so derek take it away uh, and actually i can tie it in uh with an example um Please i think do. about the accelerationists who were kind of the transitional period from navara media's uh flirtation with autonomism and then their eventual like we are the good old boys of corbyn uh in the british media which was a very at the time that it was happening for me was a very uh what the fuck uh moment um <laughs> but uh but now actually in retrospect is pretty clear and it does tie into my question and, and in many ways i think fisher's argument in the vampire castle was kind of a defense of his increasing defection to corbynism in fact I, I i would go so far to say one section of that article is actually him arguing with himself um but not acknowledging it but that's a that's for another day um and the reason why i say this and you make this clear in your article about fisher is that his defenses of corbynism uh, also in pieces like democracy is joy are totally not copacetic with what's in capitalist realism they, that you can't really make them the same um i don't think if he'd have been strict to the terms he laid out in capitalist realism that it would have allowed for his embrace of corbinism uh now that corbinism is you know beyond dead uh it's uh effectively rotting um and uh, maybe plasmordial goo at this point um <laughs> uh what can we learn from from Fisher's narrowing of vision, that I think in your in your article you attribute that narrowing being manifested in his turn towards acid communism. So uh, now that we have the uh, unfortunate benefit of hindsight, um, what can we see about you know uh, where Fisher's politics you know landed on the rocks? I mean, it's interesting just in kind of hindsight obviously you're you're saying corbynism but you're talking about a time when it didn't exist right under that right. name we're now using that retrospectively to refer to um left labor politics um and i do think that and, and i highlight this in the article that the 2015 general election in the uk was actually the real turning point um not only for Fisher, but like for the wider left. And Corbyn was more or less an kind of incidental figure who expressed that turn that was that was obviously already happening. Um, and, you know, you get 
I think it's in um, his, I think in his writing or blog posts on the 2015 election, you know, he's entertaining all kinds of fantasies about Plaid Cymru and uh, which is the Welsh Nationalist Party and the Scottish Nationalist Party being in some kind of coalition with Ed Miliband's Labour. Um, another kind of, and, and that's where he has this reference back to, he, he talks about an article that he, or something he wrote or thought in 1997 with Jeremy Gilbert, who's a, who was a long time collaborator of his, um, you know, that, that New Labour could create the conditions for a return of the left by uh, remobilizing the unions and um, I mentioned this earlier but it's it is hard to imagine um, but it you know it was a real thing um, so I think that that 2015 moment is important and the other figure who reappears then is Russell Brand um, because what in the Jeremy Paxman interviewed circa 2013 when everyone's in their neo-anarchist uh, phase and Russell Brand is going around telling people don't vote. That's what Jeremy Paxman is like, you know, attacking him for. How can you tell people not to vote? So in 2015, on the eve of the election, Russell Brand basically has this change of heart and decides he's going to tell all his brilliance of youth followers to vote for Labour. And Ed Miliband does a secret late night interview with Russell Brand. And it's this whole kind of... <laughs> Um, I mean, the whole thing's ridiculous now when you think about it. Um, so he kind of pops up again there and there's this kind of idea again of we have to get the Tories out. Um, now, I, I don't know, but my, as I, like I said earlier, I don't, I think that was always Fisher's politics. I don't think that that ever went away. I just think the particular conditions in 2009 where you still had the, um, at that time it was Gordon Brown but you still had the Labour Party in government and it was really the tail end of of new Labour um, and they were in their own botched way dealing with the financial crisis and had obviously um, lost a lot of support because of the Iraq war um, it was easier to entertain a certain kind of communist turn let's say Right, so Fisher's turn to Badiou and Zizek to yeah. complement his earlier um, Deleuze and Guattari stuff. Um, so I'm not sure that um, I, I don't know. You know, the the other the other um, case I cite from that time is the uh, anarchist group Plan C, right, um, which stands for communism, C for communism, and they had a piece at the time saying. Um, will accept plan B, right? So plan A is austerity, plan C is communism, and plan B was Ed, Ed Miliband <laughs> yeah. in coalition with the SNP. Um, now, I'm kind of I'm kind of like laughing about this, but I guess the point I want to put across is this is something else I've written about separately in the Plasticus Review, if people want to read it, the kind of long history of the left's relationship to the Labour Party in the UK. Um, but this is a serious ideological obstacle that, um, you know, people come back to time and time again. The other aspect of this um, that I think is important and I think is 
you know, at least the occasion for Fisher's uh, just kind of collapse into and kind of neo-social democracy is something I guess we should talk about is the broader change in capitalism, right? The crisis of neoliberalism. Um, and Fisher obviously recognized this, that the political formations in which his whole kind of political life had been shaped were coming into serious crisis uh, and breaking down and couldn't continue in, in the old way. Um, but that his, his whole kind of theoretical framework and political framework was so conditioned by the neoliberal era in which he'd lived up until then that he actually couldn't quite process the change that was happening. And the change that was happening was being led by the right uh, in the UK with Brexit and the US with the election of Donald Trump um, and various other phenomena. And I think that was something that Fisher really couldn't um, get his head around. He had some, uh, his last unfinished piece was called Mannequin Challenge um, and, and basically reproduces some of the um, kind of typical left ways of writing off those phenomena without really trying to think through them. Um, and it's interesting to think about when Russell Brand is going around in 2013 saying to Jeremy Paxman, there's going to be a revolution. And Mark That's Fisher right. is like, yes, I know, I can feel it. Um, maybe this is the revolution that they were expecting. I'm not calling this a revolution, by the way. But, you know what <laughs> I mean, okay. maybe this is the political transformation they were expecting. Um, but they ne it never occurred to them that it wouldn't be the left leading it. Right. 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 I think there was a mm -hmm. there was an interview with Brian Eno um, just after Brexit in The Guardian where he basically said this. He was he said, we always thought that we, i.e. the kind of the liberals or the left or whoever he's identifying with, would be the people to lead the revolution or the anti-austerity rebellion or whatever the kind of turmoil and crisis of the political forms of neoliberalism was going to be. And uh, it was a shock to them that it that they weren't, you know, that it didn't come from them. Um, so I think that definitely impacted Fisher. And I think the turn to acid communism, right, this um, reappraisal he has of the new left is a way of trying to deal with that that really um, fudges the issue. So um you know again that's the other shift he goes from having a critique of the new left in capitalist right. realism again a critique which i think is based on a kind of bad theoretical framework that he gets from zizek and has all this kind of lacanian language in it about um libidinal energies and big others um but uh he has this kind of reappraisal of the new left. He wants to talk about feminist consciousness raising circles. Um, he wants to talk about the kind of hippie counterculture. He says things like uh, in one of his last speeches, he says um, that neoliberalism was just a, 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 an attempt to crush the fear, which was that all the workers would become hippies and that that was a real danger. Um, so I, I don't think it's, um, a, I, I think it kind of throws into crisis for him the question of the origins of neoliberalism. I think mm. earlier he would have been more circumspect about 
the left's complicity, right? The fail, the question of the failure of the new left in the emergence of neoliberalism. You know, in the exiting the vampire castle essay, he literally says it. Yeah, right. He he's talking about this kind of rise of identity politics, but he says specifically, we can't just blame this on getting beaten up by the right. Right. We can't just call this the oppression of the right. Uh-huh. We have to essentially deal with our own complicity in the dead end of the left. Um, and it's that that aspect which he drops, which is um, which is crucial. Ephraim, um, I want to thank you for joining us today. If you have time for one more question um, and if you're comfortable to talk about it, um, I just wanted to touch on uh, something I saw during the week, uh, a piece by uh, Matt Colquhoun. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> um, the title of the piece was Mark Fisher was not Russell Brand. Russell Brand, of course, currently in the news on the basis of um, at, at least one alleged uh, rape uh, many years ago. Um, there seems to be, I mean, I, I'll say what I think here. This, this does seem to be something like a coordinated uh, campaign against against Brand, but I appreciate that that's a controversial remark and uh, is certainly not uh, to be taken, I hope, as a defense of Brand if it's found that he is guilty of, of anything of that nature. Um, what do you think Fisher would think today or how he would respond to this news about Brand specifically? Or or how would how would Russell Brand fit in Fisher's theorization of capitalism today? I mean, it's really difficult to answer a question, you know, what the, the what would they think if they were alive, if they could see us now question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think it's not controversial to say that um, there is serious uh, censorship uh, internationally, but also in the UK, that there's a context in which Parliament's passed the online safety bill, which right. essentially raises all kinds of questions about censoring um, speech on the internet, uh, that various government and parliamentary figures are making all kinds of weird statements up to social media companies about how they need to shut people down. Um, we really have gone from, it's funny, some of the language Fisher uses in the Exiting the Vampire Castle essay about, um, he talks about calling out, right? We used to say that call out <laughs> culture. That's like a, a lost term. Now it's cancel culture, right? Which yeah. is which is in a way more aggressive, right? You don't just call someone out, you you cancel them from from whatever kind of it's existence. It's a very archaic term nowadays. Call, call yeah, culture, call out yeah. culture. Yeah. I can um, even comment on how the terms that we use are changing all the time in the vampire castle in the essay too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, I don't know. I, I think that the intervening event is the um, election of Donald Trump, which Fisher didn't really live much beyond to see uh, kind of how that would unfold. 
um, and the way in which all these questions of disinformation, you know, fake news, alternative media um, were politicized around that. Russia collusion hoax and all the rest of it. Uh, and the other thing is the um, COVID pandemic and the uh, censoring of discussion online around uh, COVID. Um, and both of those are big issues for Russell Brand and his kind of online rants. Um, so I, I've got no idea how how Fisher would respond. I don't think he would. Um, I, you know, I, it's really hard to say, but I think his his the the point that I've you know we've been discussing is that his um, skepticism and critique of the left had already fallen apart by 2016. Right. Um, That's interesting. So, I, you know, to the extent that the left is still struggling with how to deal with um, these kinds of media scandals and uh, what its response should be, and also basic principles around free speech and the state, um, I'm not sure how Fisher would react to that. I don't, rem you know, I don't remember him, for example, writing about Julian Assange, which was the case. Mm. Um, in the early 2010s that maybe would have had some parallels around state repression and censorship and um and i don't know what official you know one of the things with the, the russell brand case is, for example his relationship with a 16 year old girl mm -hmm. um which is the legal age of consent in the uk yes. um but has so you know that's also the me too movement hadn't happened yet while mark fisher was alive um and that kind of way in which uh sexual behavior that people disapprove of um and criminal uh rape was often kind of blurred in a certain way right or, or put into into um one sentence when maybe they shouldn't have sure been. um so yeah i i i can't really answer the question about where Fisher would 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 respond to that. What I can say is that the um, diagnosis in the Vampire Castle essay of essentially the left being dead and uh, being sort of unable to um, get out of its silos, um, mm -hmm. right? That having having a censorious aspect um, to its own speech, right? That people don't want to debate with each other. They don't want to talk to each other. People are, um, you know, again, in their sects of ones and twos. Yeah. Um, that would maybe look very familiar to him and it would probably uh, be disappointing. Uh, I have a friend, uh, some of the listeners may have listened to him in the past. He used to have a podcast called Dead Pundit Society. Adam Proctor, I, I, I think it's originally his line, but I heard a few other people use it in the intervening years. You know, we we thought we were exiting the vampire castle, no longer policing its ramparts, but turned out we were just taking up residence in the basement, which uh, I think is kind of a powerful line. Uh, any last words, Derek? Um, you know, when I when I think about this, uh, this this legacy of Fisher, I, I am always torn because I, I do think he's paradigmatic of a certain kind of very British in some ways, but 
in the way that so many left things from Britain get popularized in America and turned into a funhouse mirror of themselves, and particularly after he was dead. We've seen that with Fisher. Um, and it has made one of the the uh, the tragedies of Fisher's death beyond his death, which is bad enough, um, is that uh, it's very hard to be to be critical and yet also broadly supportive at the same time uh, of him now. Uh, because the criticism is taken as spitting on a dead man, and the support uh, is seen in the intra-left culture wars that have plagued us now for my entire life, honestly. I mean, uh, one thing that I would say, uh, the millennial left embodies, you know, the kind of um, the results of things that really do begin before the new left. And I, and it's one thing I think I really appreciated about Ephraim's piece is that remembering also that the new left isn't really the, you know, is not either the savior or the fault of everything that led us to where we are, that actually there's a longer history here and the history is at least 100 years old. Uh, and that Fisher is a particular manifestation of that is probably one of the better ways to both deal rig critically, but honor his legacy without, you know, endlessly quoting, you know, his first you know, 90 page book at people forever. Um, and um, that's kind of my takeaway. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's specifically about the vampire castle. I think it's interesting to look at where the other respondents ended up as well in that initial five piece. Jody Dean uh, became associated with the PSL um, and went into her critique of neo-feudalism and her communicative capitalism is taken to imply that capitalism is no longer primary dynamic, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, Michael Rettenwald uh, had his Twitter scandal he ends up writing, uh, uh, quitting writing a book with me personally. We were writing on Marxism and, and uh, different models of secularization. Um, he then writes a book called, I think, A Springtime for Snowflakes, and as uh, one of Bill O'Reilly's last um, interviewees, uh, Sam Chris got canceled. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say about that. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm laughing. I shouldn't, I actually think cancel canceling people is bullshitty, but it was ironic given his, uh, his initial yeah. attack on Fisher. Um, and, uh, um, in regards to the editorial staff, uh, one of the editorial members went from being, a from, from, from being a, a left com to being like a, uh, diehard uh, PRC apologist at, uh, I think, becoming a Christian. Uh, the uh, uh, Paul Shetler uh, became more and more right-wing until he died prematurely a few years back. Um, Matthias Krul, uh, um, who was one of the cr critics of uh, Fisher in the initial piece on the, on the board, ended up uh, recently 
bringing up on Twitter um, accurately. I had to defend him for his accuracy uh, that that uh, the Vampire Castle piece was indeed about Russell Brand and arguing with Matt Calhoun and um, and I uh, am on this this podcast so uh, that says where I am, but I think it actually has proven to me that there is a a fragmentation that this represented that has not been addressed and uh, people accommodated by going in different directions but almost all of them um were to you know were to either get out of the way of the millennial left are to be a kind of internal critic of the millennial left or betray the millennial left. I mean, none of us felt like we could stay in lockstep with it. And I think that uh, indicates a lot. I think the the danger for, you know, the legacy of Mark Fisher is that he'll become part of the just so story of the millennial left. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it will be, he will actually, you know, because like millennials will become academics and they'll actually, they're going to teach this book to their students, right? They're going to teach this to Zoomers and younger. And it will be a kind of way of dealing with their own personal history on the left as well. And it will become a way of exactly what Fisher describes in Capitalist Realism of um, kind of erasing the stitch marks, right? Where things have been... um, shoddily stitched together making the incommensurable commensurate but i think the the challenge then on the other side is what is the purpose of um brushing that history against the grain because you know we can have a kind of roll call for the dead um or we can say that's not how it was um but how you know what is what is it about um trying to hold open where things didn't go or just pointing out that um there were political ideological disputes um rather than pretending everyone like ended up in the same place for the same reasons um how is that actually going to serve us um going forwards right um I think that's one of the kind of tricky, tricky points here. And, you know, in in just thinking about how this discussion has reviewed really the history of the millennial left vicariously through Mark Fisher. Yeah. Um, So it, you know, we need to actually kind of leverage that history critically um, and, and, you know, Platypus as a project is, essentially trying to intervene in uh, the miseducation that will otherwise go on for another generation. Noah, any last thoughts? Um, yeah, I suppose, I guess we've been talking about like millennials um, and Gen X. So it'd be appropriate to mention where Zoomers fit into all this. I So I was, I was uh, on a college campus recently and and it struck me because I was there. I was there in 2016 when Trump was elected, and my God, that was a shit show. Like, you know, my teachers were crying, yada yada. But it struck me. It struck me how sort sort of uh, more conflict averse the students were when I went back um, 
um, this time, and, and I think that could be understood as sort of a product of growing up sort of in the vampire castle and witnessing sort of the hostility um, and, and what can happen if you step out of line. Um, uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't think a conflict diverse uh, Zoomer left uh, <laughs> would, would help. Uh, it, it would be very interested in sort of revisiting the old conflicts of the past either um, to to Derek's point about this article being sort of um, at the center of, of a big conflict in the left and the people sort of around the article heading in different directions. Um, I, to, me that, to me, that's really the most interesting part about the article. Um, you know, I think the, I think as Ephraim mentioned earlier, I think, you know, the criticism that it makes of the left for a fair amount of people on the left is like potentially terminal um, you know, like, there, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's it's not clear that there's a solution uh, to the problems that he's talking about in the vampire castle. Um, and, and I think that's why it's such a contentious piece, uh, why some people attack it. You know, uh, for me personally, I, I came across the article when I was, when I was, I'd been a liberal and then I was, I was, I was rebelling against that. And what the article did for me was it showed me that that there is like a, a left that exists that has some integrity and you know it has value. Uh, so it didn't push me right; it kept me left. Whereas if it hadn't existed, I, would, you know, I I would have it would have been easier to be like, uh, you know, maybe the left doesn't really have that much doctor. Um, very interesting. So, so Fisher was your 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 entry drug, your gateway drug, so to speak. Yeah. Well, you know the 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 lady who hasn't been mentioned, uh, Angela Nagel, was oh, yeah. was when I and I think that I think the best companion text to the article would be the Nagel book. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody who also has sort of gone off politically, um, you know, uh, has has deviated, I think, somewhat. Um, She's just become a Biden yeah. supporter. What? She's a Biden. Yeah. She's a Biden I mean, supporter. Yeah. I mean, that's yes. Yes. So like the whole idea, but even that, even that she ended up right wing is not true. She, she ended up, uh, and being a Biden supporter is being right wing. Well, yeah, I thought that, I thought, yeah, the metric, Fair. I thought the metric that we apply is, uh, whether they went on Tucker Carlson or not. I thought that was um, the sole metric for, okay. Uh, I mean, we could, uh, to keep on mentioning people that I've had uh, contentious relationships with their keywords. Um, but uh, uh, I, I think it's interesting how, how a lot of this has fallen out and how a lot of this critique has, has played out. Because in some ways, um, I think, I think my, my biggest pushback is going to be I don't think uh, we ever like, yeah, we were stuck in the basement, but we're also vampires. Ah, interesting. Like we are not exempted from this vampirism. There's a way in which Fisher was always to me trying to be a way out where we, we claimed we were something else. We were, you know, a, a, a new, you know, a, a new class oriented left or whatever. But at the end of the day, what we really wanted was a counter elite. And uh, um, we were already dead too. 
and you know that like that you to, to run with this metaphor and that that was that was the most i i don't think i i didn't i definitely didn't think that in 2013 but when i reappraised this five years ago in 2018 that was where i was going it was like i felt like we were in a zombie moment where where okay first you recognize that everyone else is a zombie but then you recognize that you are also a zombie um and and that's an uncomfortable place to be and that's a place most people don't want to or can't go so and zombies are what uh, populate uh, the cathedral <laughs> yes true actually <laughs> a frame thanks for joining us today um can people follow you online or are there any sort of uh, further reading uh, suggestions you'd care to leave us with uh, before we say goodbye today? Uh, other writings by yourself or other Platypus members that you would want us to kind of get stuck into to gain further traction on these questions that we've looked at today? Um, yeah, I've, I've got a couple of articles on the Platypus Review website. Um, uh, two of which deal with the history of the Labour Party, which has come up, so people might be interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and a couple of other things that people might be interested in. Um, and uh, if you're listening from the UK, which you might not be, Platypus has chapters in London and Manchester, and you can uh, check us out through the website um, or across the US. You can find Platypus at platypus1917.org. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ephraim. It was a real pleasure having you and um, you know, appreciated the opportunity to discuss this really fascinating paper with you on the 10-year anniversary of exiting the Vampire Castle. Have a good evening. And you.